Hello, AP Psychology. Welcome to the midterm review. Uh, the midterm review can be found on our page. Uh, it's on the main page. So if you're looking for it and want the document in front of you while you listen to this, you can have it or you can just listen uh, along and um, soak it all in. Okay. So uh, the, the midterm itself is multiple choice and um, it the stuff you see on the, the review is the stuff that you're going to see on the test. However, I want to point this out, and this goes for really any AP test you take. Knowing what you see on that midterm review is important. It is vital to know that content, but you also have to be able <clears throat> to take the content that you know and have been able to memorize and recall it and then apply it to some of the situations, some of the scenarios and things like that that you're going to get. You're going to see some graphs. You're going to see some charts. You're going to see questions where it says, hey, this person is doing this, this, and this. What is that? And you got to be able to apply what you know and remember from the content to those questions. So just keep that in mind that you know, knowing that stuff is half the battle and then being able to apply it. <clears throat> is the rest of it. But let's not wait any longer. Let's get going. So first off, we're going to do the stuff that we've done recently. So unit five and unit six, and then I'll do the older stuff towards the end. So unit five um, is the bigger one of the two, unit five and six. Um, and let's get started there with priming. All right. So this is where we associate stuff in our memory. And I know stuff is a very super specific term, right? But um, it, it's just where we you know, kind of activate <clears throat> and associate uh, whatever it might be uh, in our mind, okay? Um, some key concepts, the priming thing, um, that is the stimulus, okay? Uh, influences the processing of the stimuli, all right? So basically, if you... Uh, are exposed to certain words related to a certain topic. I think maybe the example that was done in class was dogs, maybe. Uh, but if you're uh, exposed to, to stuff, you know, with old age, let's say, um, you might uh, walk more slowly or um, exhibit behaviors that are associated with, with people that are older, okay? Um, <clears throat> so that's what happens there. Um, it's kind of tied to the next thing, which is implicit memory. So uh, let's move on to that. Uh, implicit memory is going to be the kind of the unconscious retention of information. Uh, and we get this and we, we get it without really making any kind of effort at it. Okay. Um, it's different from an explicit memory where we consciously make an effort to, to remember something, to recall something, uh, whether it be like an experience, uh, a memory, something like that, okay? Uh, but implicit is going to be not that. That's where we uh, really don't uh, think about it, okay? Uh, it is just, you maybe you've heard the term, you know, how you, you never forget how to ride a bicycle. Okay, well, that's what we're talking about there. Uh, and for me, like I haven't ridden a bike in probably 10 years, but I could jump on one right now and ride it. I feel pretty confident in that. Okay, um, so that is our implicit memories. Uh, episodic memory is a long-term memory 
Okay. Uh, and that involves us remembering, recalling, whatever you want to call it, uh, some of the specific events, experiences uh, that have happened to us. Um, it is really just the ability to remember those things that, that, that have happened. And, and I, think, I think we talked about this in, in the class. Just the further out you get, the, the kind of the worse your memory gets. Uh, and like, you know, I'm 46 years old and it's harder for me to remember things that happened to me in second, third, fourth grade. Like I have very few vivid memories uh, from those times anymore as, as we get to begin to the decay. There are some things that I, I remember and hopefully I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget, hopefully. Um, but, you know, for the, the episodic memory uh, is going to be those rich, uh, detailed uh, memories that we have. Okay, uh, let's see. Episodic. Uh, <clears throat> All right, so divided attention versus selective attention. Uh, divided attention, that is going to be uh, our focusing uh, on multiple streams of information. So if you're listening to this podcast, plus watching TV, plus reading um something on your phone, you know, you're doing multiple things there. Okay. It, it's splitting our cognitive resources. Uh, and, and you probably hear it called multitasking. Uh, selective attention is where we focus on one specific task. So hopefully you're focusing on studying and preparing for this by just listening to this. All right. The, the one that's going to get you, um, the, the better attention is going to be the selective attention, obviously. All right. 5.2 is recall problems, and that is difficulties in retrieving information from memory. So I, I told you I, I, I'm probably having some some problems with my long-term memory in that I'm just so far out. It's not that I forget stuff very easily, but just things that happened to me a long time ago, I don't remember everything, okay? Uh, and you know, there's some things that you might get. Forgetting is obviously the biggest category of recall problems. You just forget something. Uh, and, you know, if you um, sometimes there's where it's right there. Like if you're trying to think of a word or you're trying to think of a situation or a scenario, I don't know if you've ever, like you've tried to think of an actor's name and it's just like, it's right there. I can feel it. I can grab it, but it's just not there. Okay. We have those kinds of things. That's, that's called tip of the tongue. Um, <clears throat> some factors that might affect this. <laughs> or help us would be some prompts. You know, maybe if someone says, well, they were in this movie. Oh, now I remember that person uh, talking about the, the actor um, or contextual factors, you know, environment, things like that uh, could also uh, help us with the recall problems. All right. Uh, memory consolidation. And this is the process by which we acquire information and store it in long-term memory. All righty. Uh, and it involves a couple of different things. This is where we get into that encoding. Um, and that's the first stage of, of memory. OK, we got <clears throat> to uh, acquire whatever it is we're getting. Uh, and then we encode the, the information into our memory. Uh, and this is where sensory information is processed and transformed into all the things our brain does, that neural code. Uh, and then we can store it and retrieve it later on. All right. It then gets consolidated. Um, and remember that you strengthen your, your, your memory by kind of saying things over and over and over again, or, or trying to, or trying, you actively trying to remember it. Like, uh, 
Uh, and I know we still forget stuff. Like I'll, Hey, I'm going to remember to do this. Like I told myself last night, I was going to do something this morning and I forgot to do it. So, and I told myself over and over and over again to do it. It just happens that way. But um, anyways, um, yeah. So that's memory consolidation. The big thing there uh, is the, the encoding, uh, the hippocampus. If we're talking about parts of the brain that uh, help it out, that does do something for it. Uh, but we're not going to get into that too much. Okay. Uh, let's see. The ability to recall a memorized list in reverse order. Uh, so this is a cognitive task uh, that taps into um, our memory and our cognitive processing. Um, it, it relies on our working memory, okay, which is limited capacity. Uh, it only holds so much uh, things, okay, uh, that working memory does. Um, but it allows us to, to process information uh, and allows us to to do things in kind of a different order. Now, I've always, you, know, you hear people about having to do like a, a, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? See, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Tip of the tongue thing. Um, <clears throat> where you have to say the alphabet in reverse order. Like I couldn't do that. I, I just, I know I can't. So uh, let's see, context effects in memory. So this is the idea that uh, the context or the environment in which information is encoded uh, is going to help with a successful memory recall. If I remember correctly, you, you wrote a FRQ that dealt with some of this stuff where uh, someone was studying and you know the retrieval is helped by you doing kind of the same thing uh, over and over and over sometimes, right? Or in the same place or listening to music and then not listening to music while you're trying to take a test or something like that. Uh, problems with recall. Uh, this is the difficulties that occur when we try to retrieve information from memory. Uh, it can happen. You already kind of talked about the tip of the tongue thing where, hey, it was right there. And then I couldn't think of the, the daggum thing that uh, about the, the uh, what you call it. And now I'm drawing another blank. Uh, the alphabet in reverse order. Uh, you know, I couldn't do that. Uh, but we want retrieval cues to help us <clears throat> with that. Uh, to get into our stored memories. Uh, contextual factors are going to help us uh, with this problem as well. Uh, retroactive interference. Uh, this is a memory issue, and uh, it occurs when we have new information uh, interfering with the ability to recall previously learned information. Um, it happens in a sequential learning context uh, where the order of learning is important. So think of like a math class you might have where you really got to do things in order. And if you don't do them uh, in order, you, you're kind of kind of struggle. Uh, learning to play an instrument would be another place where you got to start with the basics. You don't just jump in and start playing, you know, these complicated pieces of, of music. You have to <clears throat> work through and memorize certain orders and, and be able to do certain things before uh, you get into the, the other things, okay? So, uh, and sometimes they get in, in the way of each other. It, it's, um, uh, it can be an issue. Uh, the cerebellum, uh, so first off, it's located towards the back of our brain, um, and it is associated with our motor coordination. So if you damage your cerebellum, you're going to struggle with your hand-eye coordination uh, and those sorts of things, all right? Uh, I think the big thing to remember is the, the motor coordination. All right, point seven, the types of reasoning. Uh, so this is the mental process of drawing conclusions, making uh, inferences, and problem solving. All righty. Um, and so that is the, 
there's different types. Um, there, there's, you know, where we deduce things. So we look at something and we kind of come up with a prop with a solution, um, <clears throat> inductive, uh, where we observe uh, some of the, the things, some of the things. That's very, that's very, very, very super specific, right? Uh, but where we can look at a problem and we can use this type of reasoning uh, where we use some of the stuff we know, we look for patterns, uh, specific observations, uh, things like that. Now you might see it as the bottoms up approach. Uh, where our conclusions are based on our observations and uh, reasons. Reason. Uh, problem solving. Just remember there is a order that we go in, so we, we see that there's a problem. So that's the first step uh, in problem solving. Uh, and then we use some of the skills we just talked about there with our reasoning uh, to sort out a problem. Remember, we also test it and then we analyze it. We don't always do that. Like There's not always time to say, hey, here's the problem. Uh, let me use my types of reasoning and then let me test it and then then put it in place like if you're driving uh, you have to make split second decisions so we do this very quickly right so our problem solving is not always going to be this short um, short thing uh, uh, excuse me long drawn out thing it's going to be quick sometimes sometimes uh, point eight biases in thinking uh, so this is some of the the different <clears throat> Let me just run through some of the different biases that we 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 have. Uh, so there can be confirmation bias. Uh, that is the tendency to look for uh, things that confirm what we already believed. Okay. So if I've been told that um, losing weight, you have to eat a certain amount of calories, uh, then I'm going to look for articles or pieces of literature that, that backs that up, okay? Um, so confirmation bias where we search for uh, and look for confirmation, basically, of things that we've already heard or, or believed. Uh, this can have, you know, some effects on us, like overconfidence, uh, selective attention already. Uh, heuristic, um, the availability heuristic, uh, that's where we judge the likelihood or frequency of events based on their, the, uh, their availability in our memory. All right, so events are more readily available or easily recalled uh, as more common or important. All right, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we just talked about overconfidence. Uh, that's where we overestimate our abilities. It can lead us to make some poor judgments because we think we can do more than we can actually do. Hindsight bias, uh, that's that person that um, has, is always going to say, well, I knew this was going to happen. Well, you never said that, but, oh, I knew it was. Um, so there is that. Next up, we got the types of intelligence. Okay, so uh, there are all kinds of ways to learn, and that's, that's what you're going to get into a lot of times uh, with this, types of intelligence. Um, remember, there are several different ways you might learn. Okay, uh, and we focus in on the, the several different ways, the linguistic, logical, mathematical, spatial, bodily, kinesthetic, kineth kinesthetic, musical, interpersonal, and intrapersonal. All right. Basically, uh, and like I think I said this in the class, your teachers have probably gone through some of their classes where they have been told, hey, mix things up. Don't always do the same thing in a class for people to learn because people learn all kinds of different ways. 
Some people need to turn their notes into music, all right, uh, because they are a musical learner. Some people need to get up and move around because they are bodily kinesthetic. Uh, some people are very logical and they need to see reasonings, problems, and that sort of stuff. So just there's there's all kinds of different uh, intelligence, and that comes from from Howard Gardner, um, who who came up with the, the different types. And yeah, you know, we'll probably add some different types at some point uh, in. In our lifetime, I would think there'll be other ways or new ways to, for us to learn. Uh, Alfred Beignet, I'm probably saying that name wrong because Beignet is, I think, a donut, right? But anyways, uh, Bennett, um, he was French, okay? Uh, and he was big into the, the intelligence testing. And uh, he will start this process uh, looking to try and figure out the mental age of, of, of people. And... Uh, the chronological, so the mental age compared to the chronological age of a child is what this was created for, all right, or what he started. And uh, that'll turn into eventually the uh, IQ test, all right, so IQ test. Um, and there's, uh, you've probably taken an IQ test at this point in your life, I would think. Um, I think it's just part of some of the testing that y'all probably go through um, with some of the standardized tests that you might take. I don't, who knows, maybe you haven't though. Uh, but anyways, that's that's what he's famous for. All right, tests to measure student potential. Uh, so these tests measure, you know, the various cognitive abilities that you have, your skills, your aptitudes, and, and those sorts of things. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The so some of the different tests that are out there, uh, you know, as far as intelligence goes, uh, the Stanford Beignet test, uh, which we just talked about, that's that IQ basically thing. Uh, the Wechsler intelligence skills, uh, the SAT is used uh, to determine a lot of things. Uh, you have aptitude tests that are going to help measure your intelligence, okay, uh, if you believe in those things. Uh, children and language acquisition, okay, so that's just the process through which kids acquire uh, language skills. Uh, so it's learning, you know, your first language, whatever your main language is, the one that you learned at home. Um, it's all about learning to communicate, you know, starting off non-verbally. And then uh, you get into actually exploring some of the sounds and you start speaking words and, and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about kids acquiring their their language now we can also get into you know trying to acquire a second language and most studies show that it's much easier for for kids young young children uh to acquire second uh languages all right versus the next thing which is adults in language acquisition where it gets a lot more difficult for uh adults or older people to uh to get this because you know people like me, for example, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn Spanish and I'm moving along. I'm trying. Uh, I've got some things down. I can say a few things. Like, uh, um, mi espousa is muy bonita. My wife is very beautiful. You know, things I can say a few things. I probably don't say them correctly. And, and that's part of it is, is the, the pronunciation uh, and things like that. So, you know, the older you get, you face some cognitive development issues where uh, you're trying and, and I am trying, uh, it's just a little more difficult than it is for someone who's younger uh, to learn those languages. All right, so that's unit five. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back with unit six. All right, welcome back. Let's jump right into unit six. So this is the stuff that we've been working on up to the midterm. Uh, so hopefully it's pretty fresh, and we can move pretty quickly through this, uh, quicker than the, the unit five stuff, which was 
20 minutes, so I apologize for that. Uh, let's see, unit six starts off with developmental norms. Uh, so that's just the typical patterns that we go through. <clears throat> Uh, related to like growth, uh, your behavior, uh, and some of the milestones uh, that we go through. So, you know, physically, uh, your motor skills, getting learning to walk, use your hands correctly. Uh, you know, you, you proceed from being a little baby where you just start to sit up and then you start crawling and, and things like that to where you're running around, uh, you know, playing your sports that you might play, doing all the things that you might do. Uh, cognitively, you know, we start to develop our brain very early on and we start to acquire knowledge as we learn to speak and talk and, and our grammar and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's other things as well. Our social emotional development uh, is important. Uh, and, you know, we get into being socialized. This is, this is why your parents wanted you to go on play dates and things like that. Uh, so you can learn uh, friendships and, and social cues and, and, and things like that. But that's what we're talking about there with the developmental norms is just uh, your development from being a kid, uh, a little baby kid, uh, to the young adult that you are nowadays. Uh, baby development and researchers. Okay, so we're going to go through a few things here and just mention a few of the researchers that have done um experiments or come up with theories uh, on uh, some of this. But just the development is what we just talked about. Uh, that is, you know, as an infant, you do begin to develop skills, even though you don't know it. You know, like I can't remember learning to crawl and you probably don't either. <clears throat> uh, but it is stuff that has happened, you know, and we do develop uh, over time and, and kind of turn into the person that we are uh, today. All righty. But physically, you know, we're developing our motor skills, our sensory depth and, and perception. Uh, we're maturing biologically as well. Um, and I don't think there's a researcher you really got to know for the physical side. Uh, cognitively, cognitive, cognitive development, excuse me. Uh, that is the, you know, our cognitive abilities, how our brain is working. Uh, and it is things like attention, our memory, our perception, uh, problem solving, all that stuff is some, some cognitive uh, items that we go through uh, as a child and moving on up. Uh, a notable researcher, you got two to remember here. You got Jean Jean Paget. Uh, he was a Swiss uh, psychologist. Uh, and his main theory is the cognitive development. And he just describes different stages uh, that we go through of intellectual intellectual growth uh, from the time we're a little baby uh, through our adolescence. Okay, so that's what he's uh, going to be known for. Uh, Lev Vygotsky, and I'm probably saying that wrong, is a Russian psychologist. Uh, and he comes up with a socio-cultural theory of cognitive development. And I'll go into a little more detail about that a little bit later, uh, but it emphasizes social interaction, uh, language, and cultural tools in shaping our development. Uh, social emotional, uh, once again, that is those, you know, uh, kind of reading friendship cues, social uh, cues, and things like that. Um, Ainsworth, Mary Ainsworth is the psychologist for that. Um, and she did the strange situation, which I'll talk about in more detail in a few minutes. Uh, so just pay attention there. Uh, but she was looking at infants and attachment. Okay. Uh, I think that is it for that. Yeah, I think we're good there. All right. The next thing on your midterm review says graph analysis. So there's going to be a graph that you're going to have to analyze uh, and work through some some things with it. Not work through, but just look at the graph and figure out what it's what the question is asking. Uh, all right. Environmental effects 
than with genetic influence? I think that's a poorly worded way to write a question or, or a topic. Uh, but what we're getting at here is the, the impact of different factors, uh, external, like your parents and, and the, the, the care they provided for you, uh, maybe your socioeconomic status. Um, so did you grow up uh, in poverty, wealthy, middle class, and so forth, uh, culture, nutrition, all those kinds of things. Um, and how they affect your, your childhood experiences and how they affect your growth as a child. So all the things we were just talking about there, your cognitive, your physical uh, growth and your social growth, social, social, I can't talk, social emotional growth uh, versus, you know, the, the genetic things that happen, just the things that you can't help. You were just born with these genetic factors uh, and how they influence your uh, development. So we're kind of getting into a situation where we're talking about nature versus nurture here uh, and, you know, your parental care uh, and how that affects you. Uh, what role do they play? Like, do they read to you every night and make you fall in love with readings and how you read all the time? Did they leave you alone or did I tell you, you know, just that kind of stuff versus versus the nature part where it's just you and your genes and, and you know, you um, have become the person that you are uh, based on just kind of what you were. I don't want to use the term predispositioned, but, you know, your genes can play a role. Uh, you know, some people can work out, you know, 10 hours a day and they're not going to to see any growth or development in their muscles just because they're kind of, to me, now this is my opinion, uh, they're not genetically predispositioned uh, to get a six pack of abs or, you know, get huge biceps or whatever it might be. I really truly believe that. Uh, all right. Point two deals with Mary Ainsworth's strain situation experiment. So I said we touched on that a little bit more. So here it is. So there's a specific question uh, on the strain situation experiment. Uh, and so she once again was looking at um, attachment. Okay. And so the strain situation, uh, she's observing um, the attachment patterns between infants uh, and their primary caregivers. Alrighty. Uh, and so she would uh, look at the reactions from the, the little babies, the infants, um, as they were separated and then reunited with their caregiver. Uh, and so that's what she was looking at. Um, and she would sometimes take the parent away and then bring in a stranger, okay? Uh, and then bring the parent back after they've met, after the kid, is, the baby has seen the, the stranger. So uh, that's what she was looking at. And so she came up with... <clears throat> Some uh, attachment patterns, uh, three of them actually, secure attachment where uh, they are secure. Uh, uh, they show distress when they're separated. So yeah, you've, you've maybe heard of attachment issues. Maybe you have a younger brother or sister who, who can't have your parents leave or something like that. Uh, they they want to see their parents. They want to be with them. They seek the proximity to, to be around them. Uh, insecure avoidance, avoidant attachment Um that's infants with secure avoidant attachment. They show little distress upon separation uh, from their, their parent. Okay. Then insecure resistant. Uh, that was where they show intense distress uh, when they are separated from their parents. All right. The styles of parenting. This is the patterns of behavior, attitudes, and strategies that parents used to interact and raise their children. Um, they have been classified uh, into two dimensions, responsiveness, okay, that's the, the warm and support, and demandingness, uh, that's the control or restrictive version of the parents, all right, and you got a couple of different styles, you got authoritative, 
they are responsive and demanding, okay? Uh, these parents can be warm, supportive, and nurturing toward their children, but also set some very clear expectations and very clear boundaries. Uh, they give you structure and guidance um, and allow you to express your opinion, make some independent decisions, um, and they, you know, uh, typically have fairly positive outcomes. Authoritarian, so don't get it confused, authoritative versus authoritarian. Um, authoritarian parenting, that's where they're very demanding, but they're not very responsive. Okay, strict, controlling, disciplinarian. Uh, they want complete obedience. They want respect for their authority. You have to listen to their rules and their regulations. They are going to use punishment, coercion, uh, harsh discipline. Okay, uh, you might, might be less affectionate, less emotionally supportive uh, of their children. Uh, the permissive, indulgent parenting, uh, they are highly responsive, but not demanding. Okay, uh, Warm, affectionate, indulgent toward their children, uh, offering unconditional love and support. And there's very few expectations or rules. Uh, they are lenient, non-directive, uh, and their kids have a lot of freedom. Okay, and then uninvolved, neglectful, ne neglectful parenting. Uh, they are not responsive. They are not demanding. They are emotionally detached, disengaged, uh, and they really just don't do what they're supposed to do uh, as parents. They provide little guidance, little supervision, little structure, uh, little support of their children. Okay, uh, and they are really preoccupied with their own whatever it is they got going on work. Uh, personal substance abuse, whatever it might be. Uh, next up is Harry Harlow. Uh, so he's an American psychologist and uh, he did work on attachment, social isolation, and maternal deprivation in non-human primates. So he was looking at uh, uh, primates um, and he specifically did some work with uh, R-H-E-S-U-S -E monkeys and um, so what he was looking at was was basically <clears throat> uh, isolating these the baby monkeys from their mothers shortly after birth, uh, and then bringing them up in social isolation, or with surrogate mothers. Okay, um, and so he was looking to investigate basically what happens when your mother is taken away from you uh, as a as a baby, and how does that affect uh, your emotional and social development. Alrighty. Um, so yeah, that was his, his big experiment. Sounds kind of mean to take you little baby monkeys away from their mom. Uh, Conrad Lorenz, uh, big into animal behavior. Uh, and this is the guy that did the imprinting. Okay. And the aggression, uh, and whatnot. And he's the one, if you remember that, uh, had looked into, uh, the geese, he did some experiments with some geese where basically he was the first one for them to see uh, some baby geese uh, actually hatched and all that kind of stuff. And they imprinted on him, all right? And they were like, hey, this is my my mom, uh, even though it wasn't, okay? Uh, it was, he was the first moving object that they saw. And so <clears throat> that's kind of what that, uh, what, what Lorenz is known for, is that imprinting experiment with the geese. All right, let's see. Next up is Diana Bomerend. And I'm probably saying that wrong, uh, but she did research on parenting styles and their effects on child development. 
she did this in the 60s and 70s. And um, she's kind of the one that we associate with the, uh, the different styles that I've already gone over. So I'm not going to go back through those. The responsiveness, uh, demandingness, and then the four types, authoritative, authoritarian, permissive, <clears throat> and uh, neglectful. Okay. So I'm not going to go back over those. Uh, let's see, object permanence, uh, that's a concept uh, that refers to understanding that objects exist even when they're not directly perceived or observed. So this goes for us. Like, I know y'all are out there somewhere. Y'all know that I'm out there somewhere, but we're living our own life, okay? Even though we can't see each other, even though we don't know really much about each other we know that we exist and that goes for all kinds of things uh, that are out there all right um paget the swiss person is the one that kind of alluded to this uh and they're the next on the uh, list paget we've already talked about him uh but developmental psychology um, and cognitive development he came up with several stages from childhood uh, through kind of adolescence, uh, birth two-year-olds, uh, little kids. This is where you're developing your sensory and motor abilities and things like that. Uh, two to seven, you're getting your language, your thinking, your imagination. Uh, seven to 11, you start to begin to be able to think logically about objects, concrete objects, understand uh, different like operations, and uh, perform mental operations. Uh, and then around 12 and beyond, uh, you start to develop your abstract thinking, your hypothetical reasoning, deductive logic, and things like that. Vygotsky's social learning theory. So I said we talked about him a little bit more. Um, he is going to emphasize the importance of social interaction uh, in cultural context in shaping your cognitive development. Um, his... He differed from Paget uh, as he focused more on the role of social experiences and cultural tools uh, than did Paget. Paget just said you kind of develop this over time um, and you get it, okay? Adolescence and risky behavior, bottom line here is you're going to take, not you necessarily, but uh, young people uh, are going to take some risks because your brain is not fully developed. You might do some things that you know, you might not do as an adult. Like today, one of my main goals is to just not get hurt. So uh, I got asked to play in the student faculty basketball game last year. And uh, my main goal was to, one, not get hurt, and two, not embarrass myself. And this this other guy, uh, a little bit younger than me, but he, he got crossed over and he fell flat on his face. Uh, hurt his ankle, and also embarrass himself in, 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 in the, the process. I did not want to do that, okay? But that's uh, adolescence. You're going to be more likely, and this is why your parents worry so much. It's because, you know, you're not always just ready to go, and you do make some, some decisions that might not <clears throat> be the best. Uh, let's see, primary sex characteristics. So this is the physical features and structures uh, directly involved in reproduction, uh, and these are the ones that are going to develop during puberty. Okay, um, and so just the different uh, organs and structures uh, and those sorts of things uh, that happen, and that's what we're getting at there. Uh, 
Uh, Erickson's Stages of Development. So uh, you did this on one of your concept maps. It was also on your study guide. So hopefully you got this. Uh, but you got trust versus mistrust. That's infancy, birth, the 18 months. Uh, and that's where you start to learn to trust or mistrust your caregivers uh, based on their consistency. Uh, not autonomy versus shame and doubt. That's early childhood, 18 months to three years. Uh, this is where you start to get some independence and start to explore making some choices. You know, they might be basic choices, but you start to, to make some. Uh, preschool, three to five years old, initiative versus guilt. Uh, this is where you start to get into some imaginative play. Maybe you have a, you know, best friend uh, who's not really there, but your creative, your social interaction is starting to develop here. Uh, industry versus inferiority, uh, six to 11. This is your elementary school years, uh, and you start to, to master some new skills, you know, acquire some knowledge here uh, from your schooling. Uh, you start to become competent in your academic achievements and things like that. Uh, 12 to 18 year old is identity versus role confusion. So uh, you start to explore some of your different roles. This is where you start to really start to develop your values, your beliefs, uh, your relationships, and things like that. Uh, 18 to 40, intimacy versus isolation. So you start to look for uh, relationships that you can depend upon that are going to be loving, caring, uh, and looking for, you know, commitment and things like that. You're going to develop close friendships. Uh, this is where you're going to start to, to really develop those relationships that can turn into long, <clears throat> long-term marriages and things like that. Uh, seven, uh, six, 40 to 65, generativity versus stagnation. Uh, so this is your middle years. This is where I'm at, I guess. Uh, and you start to focus on productivity, your contributions, your legacy. Uh, you're trying to, to do things that are going to be remembered maybe uh, for the next generation, leave a lasting impact uh, on your community, your profession, uh, whatever it might be. And then finally, uh, late adulthood, 65 plus, uh, that's integrity versus despair. This is the final stage of, of development, and it's late in your adulthood, uh, but this is where you start to reflect on your life, your accomplishment, and things like that. Uh, Kohlberg. So this is an American psychologist, uh, and he is going to uh, theorize about moral development, and uh, he came up with a couple of different stages. <clears throat> He builds on the work of Paget uh, and extends that concept of cognitive development to the domain of moral reasoning. All right. So according to him, moral development involves the growth of moral reasoning abilities, which become increasingly complex and sophisticated over time. He has six stages. All righty. Uh, stage one, uh, at this stage, you focus on avoiding punishment and obedience to authority figures. All right. Uh, stage two, individualism and exchange. Uh, you begin to consider your own interests and the interests of others. Moral decisions are based on this kind of idea of equal exchange. So I do this, I get this, tit for tat, maybe uh, a way to say it. Stage three is in interpersonal relationships. So you begin to prioritize your interpersonal relationship and conforming to social norms. Uh, moral decisions are going to be based on maintaining positive relationships and meeting the social expectations. Uh, stage four, maintaining social order. Uh, so you begin to uphold social order and respect for authority here. Your moral decisions are based on fulfilling the duties and following the rules. Uh, the last two, stage five, social contract and individual rights. Uh, so here, 
uh, is the importance of those social contracts, those social kind of ideas, uh, mutual agreements, democratic principles, uh, moral decision, decisions are based on the respect for individual rights. And then finally, stage six, universal principles. Uh, this is where you develop a personal set of ethical principles and things that you're going to live by. Okay. Um, so those are his. Uh, point seven deals with sexual orientation. And that is the you know, pattern of uh, romantic sexual attraction to, to different people, uh, different genders. Okay. Um, you have heterosexual where you're to the opposite sex, homosexual where the same sex, uh, bisexual where it's the either way, either, either, or you're attracted to, uh, gender differences. So this is the variations, disparities, distinctions between individuals, uh, based on their gender identity, the roles, uh, and this is where we got into like some of the uh, stereotypes and things like that. Uh, but there are biological differences between males and females, uh, including new chromosomes, uh, anatomical differences. So there is that. Let's take one last break. We'll come back and we'll finish this thing up. Welcome back. Let's see if I can wrap this uh, first semester stuff up a lot quicker. So I know I've been going a long time. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, so first up, you got 1.2 longitudinal, longitudinal, I can't say it, studies. Uh, that is where you're observing participants over an extended period of time. Okay. Uh, 1.3 is the double blind control. Uh, and this is where you are looking to validate your study results by preventing both participants and researchers from knowing which participants belong to an experimental group and which belong to the control group. Basically, you're trying to get some, some valid, um, not valid, not the wrong, but your, your results are supposed to be based on what you're observing and you don't want anybody to know what's going on, you know, participant wise. Uh, 2.1, who determines a child's sex? So you got genetic factors, okay, uh, and that's going to be your chromosomes, Females have two X chromosomes, while males typically have one X and one Y. Uh, hormonal factors can play a role too here, um, as you, know, you develop your testosterone, estrogen, those kinds of things are going to also play a role as well. But um, the genetics, it's going to you know, come from your parents um, and those chromosome things. Uh, the effects of alcohol intake, so it is not good, all right, um, and as an adult, you can run into trouble. Um, and this has come from someone who had a father who died because of his alcoholism. Uh, it is not something that you want to do. You know, you, if, if it's something you're ever going to do, it's you want it to be moderate. But heavy drinking is definitely going to take a toll on you, your body, and all, all, all parts of your body, not just your liver, but your mind uh, and all sorts of things. And then uh, we don't, you know, this is why we don't encourage uh, pregnant women to drink because it does have effect on uh, the, the fetus uh, and the baby uh, as they're growing and developing. Okay. Uh, 2.9, sleep issues. Uh, sleep is so important uh, to being just a well-functioning person, to be honest. And I think I told you this when we talked, get some sleep, like try and get your sleep in. Uh, it's one of the most important things you can do. But some sleep issues you might face, insomnia, uh, that's where you can't fall asleep. Sleep apnea, that's where you have uh, trouble breathing during sleep and you awake all the time. You might not even know that you're waking up. Uh, narcolepsy is where you uh, get sleepy all the time during the day. Restless leg syndrome, that's where you can't rest your legs at night. 
Uh, so I think that's it. All right, moving on to 3.2, selective attention. Uh, this is a where you are basically um, trying to, you're trying to filter and prioritize your information and um, maintain on topic and whatnot. Um, it, 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 selective attention plays a big role in your perception, cognition, behavior, um, and it influences how you process information, uh, make decisions, uh, and those sorts of things. Okay. Um, all right. The diagram of the ear part, there's going to be a diagram. You did one of these on your study guide. You did an assignment on this from, from, from unit one, or excuse me, from uh, unit three. So just be aware of the ear, um, you know, uh, the, the inner ear, uh, the big part is that oscillus. Uh, but once again, I'm not going to, it's difficult for me to talk about a diagram without a diagram on a podcast. So just be sure you're taking a look at the ear and you are able to, uh, you know, pick out the different parts. And, and that's what the test question is going to be about. So <clears throat> uh, reaction to bitter substances. So your taste. Uh, so, you know, when we taste bad things, which is, is bitter, um, it elicits a response. And typically that response is going to be, you know, for us to pucker up and, and not enjoy it. Okay. Um, and, and we have the bitter taste receptors on our tongue. And so that's what this is getting at. We, we might grimace, we might uh, gag or vomit when we taste these things. Uh, and it always makes me mad when people say, Hey, this tastes horrible. Taste this. And it's like, I don't want to taste that. Uh, all right. Last two things are 4.2 and 4.3. So 4.2 is conditioned stimulus and unconditioned stimulus. Um, so unconditioned stimulus is that naturally uh, something that naturally uh, and automatically trigger, triggers a reflex um, response without any kind of learning. Okay. That's so un, that's unconditioned. Uh, conditioned stimulus is something that is previously been stimulated. Okay. And is typically paired with unconditioned stimulus. All right. Um, so that is the difference there. And then finally, the types of conditioning, you've got classical, uh, that's that Pavlov uh, with the dogs and the bell. All right. Um, then you got operant conditioning. This is the instrumental conditioning that focuses on a relationship between behaviors and their consequences. So, Hey, you do this. Um, and, you, you, you get this good behavior. So here, B. F. Skinner is the one that's kind of that was big into that. Uh, he trained some birds and pigeons and rats to perform behaviors. Uh, and I think that is it. So that was much quicker. So ended on a high note there. I'm so sorry that the first two took so long. I didn't really mean to go that long. All right. Best of luck on this midterm and all your other midterms. I will be available Sunday afternoon. I'm not sure the time yet. I will send it out Saturday uh, and tell you what time. I'm not going to go back over the entire review, but I will answer or try to answer any questions you might have. And if you would prefer to just shoot me an email with any questions, you can shoot me an email to any of the email addresses that you have available to you. Uh, but anyways, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have success on all your midterms and all the things that you're doing in your life. And uh, let me know if I can help you out. All right, guys, take care. Bye-bye.